Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to <clears throat> worship you and to love you, to honor your name. And we pray, God, that the <clears throat> word would go forth this morning in power, demonstration, and love. Affirm us as your sons and daughters. Help us to receive, Lord, that fact, that covenant, the finished work of the cross. And God will bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I'd like to speak to you this morning on the subject, the finished work of the cross. The finished work of the cross provides redemption and sonship to the believer. The finished work of the cross is salvation, which includes the forgiveness of sin and physical healing. Healing is based on the finished work of the cross and the goodness of God. What is salvation? But deliverance, preservation, safety, healing, and health for our body, soul, and our spirit. Matthew chapter 9, verse 5 reads this. For whether is it easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk. For the most part, I think we've lost the doctrine of healing in our churches. Many don't believe that it's just as easy for Jesus to say, thy sins are forgiven, as it is to say, take up thy bed and walk. Be healed in the name of the Lord. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The Lord gives us power, the right and the privilege to be sons and daughters of God. What does that mean? We are possessed by a supernatural God. A spiritual invasion took place in our lives when Jesus came in and we asked him to reside there and forgive us of our sins. So many people reject Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. It's nothing I've done. It's nothing you have done. It's what God has done for us. Amen. It was his goodness. It was his forbearance. It was his long-suffering that came into our lives. But to those that respond to the gospel, to those that respond to Jesus, he says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. What does that mean? When we were weak, when we were infirm, when we were feeble and laden down with our sins, Ungodly means when we lacked reverence and worship of God. We weren't always singing in the choir because we're sinners saved by grace. But yet God came in due time. And you remember when he came. You remember that day, that moment, that hour. You remember when that spiritual invasion took place in your life. And you said, man, something's happened. I don't really understand 
But something has changed in my life. Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 says this, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 4, 6 says this, And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son and an heir. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Think about that for a moment. That we sit here and what a privilege it is to know that we have Christ in our hearts. When there are millions of people that have rejected Christ. Or millions of people that have never heard the name of Jesus. We are so privileged to know that God, a supernatural God, resides in our being. The finished work of the cross. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 and 4, Surely, for sure, absolutely, certainly, He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Let's talk about that for a few moments. Surely, Isaiah says, absolutely, certainly, he has bore, he has carried our burdens. He has lifted us up. And to do what? It says he has borne our griefs. What is our griefs? It's our sickness, our disease, our emotional up and downs. Our discouragements, our depressions. And he says, he has carried our sorrows. He's the burden bearer. Casting all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. He's the burden bearer. He doesn't mind getting overloaded. He doesn't mind being weighed down with our situations and our circumstances and our emotions. And he says this, and he's carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken. What does that mean? When we look at what he did on the cross, we value it and we regard it and we're mindful of the finished work that he was smitten, he was struck, he was hit, he was beat, he was killed and afflicted, which means he was mishandled, which means they brought him to a place that most of us could never, never go. Because he was the Savior that John saw in the Jordan River. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Isaiah continued and he said in Isaiah 53 and 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. What does that mean? He was profaned. He was defiled. He was polluted. He was desecrated. He became weak. He took our sins and our sicknesses and our diseases and our griefs. And he bore them. Think about that for a moment. 39 stripes. Every disease that you could ever think of comes in one of those categories, 39 categories. He took all of that on the cross. He experienced all of that on the cross. Plus all of our sins on the cross. Think about it for a moment. Isaiah saw this before the crucifixion. Isaiah saw this in prophetic language. And he said he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised. He was crushed to pieces. He was broken. He was shattered outside the city of Jerusalem. Abandoned by his own people. 
rejected by his own people, crucified like an animal outside the city gates like he was a nobody. Aren't you glad this morning that God has made you a somebody in his kingdom? Aren't you glad this morning that God has elevated you through the covenant and through the finished work of the cross to become a son or daughter of God? The Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace. We can be sound today. He was chastised for the peace that we have through Christ. The peace that passes all understanding. The love that he gave us. He was willing to be chastised on the cross and he did nothing wrong. And Isaiah is remarking about this. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Those stripes were the black and blues. Those stripes was the flesh that was ripped out of his body. The thorns that were placed in his head. It was ugly. He was marred beyond expression. He was marred beyond recognition in front of those that he loved, in front of those that he stood with for three and a half years on the open roads, healing people, going about and doing good, and yet he was willing voluntarily to suffer affliction and die on the cross. Through his death and through his resurrection, we become new creatures. Second, 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away, become all things have become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Think of your witness, and think of deity in you, that you have the power to reconcile someone to their God. That you have the power to reconcile someone to Christ. That you have the power to change the course of a life and the destiny of a human being. Think about that for a moment. We have power. We have deity. We have the ability of God flowing through us. I want to remind you in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 how the breath of God came into Adam. The Bible said, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I want to turn your attention for a moment on the word God breathed into his nostrils. The word in Hebrew means breath, of course, but it means blast. A blast spirit of inspiration. God took dust and he formed a man on the ground and he breathed into his nostrils, which meant that God got down in the dust of the earth and breathed into the nostrils of Adam inspiration, faith, goodness, love. All things that were perfect. And then I turn your attention to John chapter 20 and verse 21. This is remarkable. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. 
And when he said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Stop for a moment here. And let's ponder and let's consider the word breathed in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 and the word breathed in John chapter 20, 21 and 22. God wants to dispatch us. That's what the word send means. He wants to set you in motion. He wants to transmit something into your life and bestow something in your life that you've never had before. Follow. The word breathed in John chapter 20 means to blow or breathe upon. Strong's Concordance says this. This word used only once by translators in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 where God breathed on Adam and he became a living soul. Just as the original creation was completed by an act of God, so too the new creation was completed by an act from the head of the new creation, Strong's Concordance. I don't know if you really can grasp that concept for a moment. When God created Adam and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life, the breath of faith, the breath of inspiration. When we came to Christ, He breathed into us. This is like a reenactment of what God did with Adam as He breathed life into dust. And so likewise, God brings life and breathes life into our dust through the born-again experience. It's like a spiritual return to the Garden of Eden where God can speak to us as a son or daughter of God. He desires to walk in the garden of our soul in the cool of the day. I think it's remarkable that that word is only used twice in the whole entire Bible because it has such powerful meaning to us as Christians. God returned us to him. God reconciled us to him through his breath and through the finished work of the cross. God's presence is in us daily. It says in John 14 and 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. And you say, Pastor, weren't these men believers and disciples and followers of Christ? Yes, they were. Why would Jesus pray in John chapter 20, okay, and say, then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father had sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Well, Pastor, weren't they Christians? Yes, they were. Follow. In John 14 and 16, he says, And I will pray the Father. He's still on the earth, Jesus. And he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, listen to this, for he dwelleth with you, with you, and shall be in you. There's a difference. He dwells with you, but shall be in you. Hold on. For truly, John baptized with water, but ye shall 
They're Christians. They're disciples. They're followers. But this is future. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost when? Not many days hence. Something is about to happen. I said something is about to happen. You see, Jesus told him this in Acts chapter 1 verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. You get you getting this? They were followers. Jesus commissioned them. He sent them out. But he was telling them, fellas, you haven't seen anything yet. You can't even comprehend what's going to happen to you here in a few days. You can't even fathom that heaven and earth is going to meet in the upper room. You have no idea. It's beyond you at this moment. Praise God. He said, wait for the promise. Don't move. Don't go. Don't be sent. He says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. My, what God can do when people are unified. And suddenly, I like that. And suddenly, unexpected came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and it sat upon each of them and they were all filled there's the promise there's the comforter not just with you come on now not just with you my friend but in you This glass of water is with me. Some of that water is in me now. There is a difference, my friend. I said there is a difference. Even Isaiah said in the Old Testament, for with stammering lips and another tongue will I speak unto this people and give them a rest. Follow. And they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Some people say, well, I don't believe that. They get that confused with the gift of tongues that's spoken in the book of Corinthians when an assembly of people are gathered together and someone speaks out in tongues and then an interpretation is given. That's two different things. People don't know the word of God, my friend. This is a prayer language. And this was duplicated to the Gentiles. And this was duplicated to the church at Ephesus and numerous times in the Bible. And what was the outcome? They received the Holy Spirit with the first evidence. Not the only evidence, but the first evidence of speaking with other tongues. Jesus said, don't go, don't move, don't do until you go to the upper room. That's the problem that a lot of people make. That's the mistake that people make. Because they 
want to go. And Jesus said, as my father sent me, so I want to send you. But he doesn't want to send you with a water gun and a pea shooter. He wants to send you with power, with unction, with anointing. And people fight that doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit because they know more than God. That's fine. Be defeated. Fight the doctrine. Fight the word of God. Don't go to the upper room. It's on you. It's on me if I disobey the word of God. The Bible says in Romans 8, 11, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he hath raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. The whole book of Romans is talking about the Holy Spirit, especially Romans chapter 8. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that prays through us. The Holy Spirit that agonizes through us. Jude said, by that spirit, that we're built up by that spirit, that God will keep us from falling. I hardly ever pray in English. I like when God anoints me to pray in the spirit because it's a perfect prayer to God. That the enemy cannot decode. That the enemy cannot mess with. Because deity inside is talking to deity. Come on, my friend. What a blessing. What a promise. What a comforter. Praise God. It says in Romans chapter 8, in the same verse in the message version, it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life, with his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. Think about this for a moment. Jesus is in the tomb. And he's dead. He said it is finished. They take him. They wrap him up. They do all those things that they did in those days. But on the third day, something supernatural happened. The Holy Spirit came and awakened him. And he rose from the dead. Think of this for a moment. The same Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus in the Jordan River. The same Holy Spirit that was in that tomb to resurrect the Christ. Is the same Holy Spirit that quickened your mortal body and lives in you today. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what does. You know, we talk about church buildings, and we love church buildings because we can come and assemble in one place. But the real church is you and I. The real church is what God said we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. No, you're not, and you were bought with a price. <laughs> we were bought by the finished work of the cross, the blood that was shed on Calvary, purchased my salvation, purchased my deliverance. Purchased my eternal life. Hmm. The Bible says in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, it says, Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. Listen to this. Luke 17, 21. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, 
The kingdom of God is within you. We're ambassadors. We go out for God as He sends us through the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim to other people that Jesus is alive and that Jesus has forgiven me of my sins and has saved my soul. And that's the good news that we can give to people and change the destiny and direction of their life. Listen to what it says. John chapter 3, verse 34. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. What's that mean? God had immeasurable power. That same power that is in you now is without measure. Listen, if you go to the Bible and you go to the days of Elijah and Elisha, when the man of God prayed for a double portion, he did exactly, exactly double the miracles that Elijah, his protocol, had done. What is God saying? If you look at the book of Acts chapter 2, a few chapters later, these folks were praying again, and the Bible says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the building shook. God will change your prayer language. God will change your anointing. God will give you another measure of what you need for that moment and for that hour. Why? Because look what the Word of God says in Colossians 2.9. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. What's he saying? What dwells in you? Divine powers. Divine influence. Power to persuade. Power to tell people about Christ and say, listen, your life can change. He says in John chapter 1 verse 16, And of his fullness have we all received in grace for grace. What is the fullness? In the New Testament, the commentator says, The body of believers... As that which is filled with the presence, the power, the agency, and the riches of God and of Christ. It means to make full, to fill up. It's like when you go to the gas station. You fill up. God wants to fill us up every day. But it doesn't stop like the gas station pump does. It doesn't stop on full. Praise God. God says, I can give you more as you dispense. I will increase. As you give, I will give you back. As you pour out, I will pour into you. You can't. You can't. You can't outdo God. Because He always comes back to refill. Some people say, rededicate. I, I don't... I, I believe we're dedicated to the Lord. Right. I, I believe the term is sort of misused sometimes when God says, I just want to give you another filling. Right. It's kind of like when you're eating spaghetti and meatballs and garlic bread. Come on, come on. And you're already wondering, will there be another portion? Right. And don't tell me you don't do that because you meatballs do. And <laughs> Here's what we say. Will there be seconds? With God, there is not just seconds. It's unlimited. Depending on what you want. 
depending on your faith, depending on your ability and your obedience. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, But this anointing, which you have received of him, abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. What is that anointing? It's the unction. It's the Holy Spirit that's smeared upon us. It's the odor of the ointment. It's the alabaster box that's been broken in our lives. That spews out the perfume of God. The fragrance of the Lord. We should have a fragrance when we walk into the midst of other people. We should be deemed as different. Our witness should go with us. People should remember us. For how we acted, how we behaved, how we spoke, how we treated other human beings. His name, the finished work of the cross, supersedes anything that's in this world. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says this, Wherefore God also highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. This is important. Because the word highly exalted means to exalt to the highest rank and power. Supreme majesty, beyond measure, over, beyond, and more than any other name in heaven and in earth. What name? The name of Jesus. And that name, in that name, we have power over any problem, any circumstance, any disease or sickness. Must bow by faith. To the name of Jesus. Now I want to teach you something here this morning. You may consider this a sidebar, but this is very important for the last day Christian who's besieged sometimes with the past. I want you to follow closely at the scriptures that I'm going to read to you. No generational curses are a sin when you're in Christ Jesus. I want you to follow this thought. If we are in Christ, then our past generation in in Christ has been nailed to the cross. Follow. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, this is Old Covenant. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, And that will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generations. That's pretty somber. Sounds like a lot of doom. Numbers chapter 14, verse 17 through 20. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according unto the greatness of thy mercy, as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 9 says this, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. That's pretty sober and somber to think that I'm responsible somehow in my genetic makeup for what people did in the past in my family that many of them I don't even know. So along comes a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah gets a vision of something different. He says in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 27, look at this closely. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, thy fathers have eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth are set on edge. What that basically means is this. If you eat a green apple, you're going to get a bellyache. That's one of the translations. What does that mean, Pastor? It means there's a consequence for disobedience. You're going to get a bellyache if you eat a green apple. And so Jeremiah was saying this. The fathers have eaten a sour grape. We've eaten a green apple. And our children, their teeth, they got a stomachache. They got sick basically because of what we ate and what we disobeyed. But look at verse 30. But everyone, look what Jeremiah says here. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Stop right there. Something's happening. Jeremiah is seeing something here, supernaturally. He's seeing something in the spirit that his predecessors, way back Moses and others, when God gave that doom and gloom to the third and fourth generation, Jeremiah says, let's look at this for a moment. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. He's saying this, if you eat the green apple, you get the stomachache, that's on you. It's not on your kid. It's not on your grandchildren. It's not on your great-grandchildren. It's on you. He doesn't stop there. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. Here's the supernatural vision. That I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this... Verse 33, shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. The finished work of the cross and the new covenant, praise God, cancels the curse, generational curses, praise God, that so many preach about that says it's going to come on you and your kids. Amen. 
I don't accept that. I don't have to accept that by faith. Because if we are in Christ and Jesus has forgiven us of our past, woo, that goes way back, my friend. I said that goes way, way back. And if he nailed it all to the cross, I have hope. And I have faith that God took all of that in my family, all of those generations before me, and he nailed it to the cross. Listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. If you haven't heard anything yet, I want you to hear this. For I will be, un- I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, a new covenant he made, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. What's he saying? Old covenant, gone. New covenant, finished work of the cross. What does it say? It says, I'll remember their iniquities no more. He doesn't even remember my generational curses. He doesn't remember what my great grand daddy did in my, that's in reference to my life. Because I'm a son of God. And the fullness of God is in me. And by faith and by his words, listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham. Some people say that was just for the Jews. No, 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 my friend. No, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Look what it says. That it might come upon the Gentiles, praise God, through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We're included. We were grafted in. We are so seduced by the enemy when we don't know who we are and where we stand with God. We're so seduced and beguiled by the powers of evil to believe lies, the voices that come to us and tell us that we're not children of God. That now we're not sons and daughters of God. Trying to get us to deny the finished work of the cross. Right. Trying to get us to deny what happened that day. There was a spiritual cataclysm, earthquake. And because that happened, when I came to Christ, there was a spiritual cataclysm, an earthquake in my life. Even though I might not have understood fully at that moment. I was different. I was changed. In the moment of a twinkling of an eye. All of my past was nailed to the cross. Did you know that those in Christ are no longer under the authority of the wicked one? 1 John 5.19 
And we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. We are under him. He is in us. The fullness of him is in us. The kingdom of God is in us. The name of Jesus Christ is in us. Demons tremble at the name of Jesus. But yet the enemy makes us so afraid and fearful to think that we're so weak and feeble when we're not because we have him that did the finished work of the cross. We're so easily lied to. And people go around with their baggage of their past when the word specifically tells us that I will remember no more your baggage. What happens to us? That the cunning enemy comes into our garden to seduce us and oppress us with lies that so many people believe. That so many people accept. That so many people say, well, it's in my family. What family? He took you out of that family and put you in a new family. But we're so easily lied to and accepting of it when we have power over the enemy, that we have authority over the enemy. Behold, I give unto you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. But we don't accept that. We accept a lie. We accept the lies of Satan, the lies of people. People say I have low self-esteem and low self-worth. Listen, Jesus does not have any low self-esteem or low self-worth. What are you talking about? Let me ask you a question. Who are you? I, I, I wrote this down before I went to see a film the other night that I wasn't really planning to go see. I just felt like having a piece of pizza. And I like to go to the mall to get a big slice. I got two big slices. And my wife saw this film that said Overcomer. And it rang a bell with her. And I said, oh, want to go to the movies? She says, yeah. Dinner and a movie. Went to get tickets. Got raisinettes. Peanut M&M's, some kind of other crispy treat, drink. Went into this movie theater, kind of like church, thinking I better get there a few minutes early because of the seating. Went in, sat down. Me and my wife, and then another couple. I said, okay, pick your seat. Nice and quiet. 
But this film, this older gentleman is laying in a hospital bed. He's dying. And he meets the acquaintance accidentally, but providentially, by a basketball coach at the Christian school who was visiting a church member with his pastor, but they would only allow one person at a time. So he stumbled upon this room and came into this man's room and started a relationship with him. Not to tell you the whole story, but I want to tell you this part. The man in the bed, a former drug addict, had abandoned his daughter when she was born, who was now 15 years old. And this basketball coach was really feeling the blues. One of the plants closed down in the town. A lot of people moved away. He lost his basketball team. And the principal said, hey, I want you to coach cross-country track. He said, no, nah, I don't know how to do that. So I need you. So he did that. Make a long story short, he started telling this man about the track and about coaching. And this man used to be a track star, won awards. He's blind. He can't see the basketball coach. But during the course of their conversation, he says to the basketball coach, who are you? Well, he said, I'm a basketball coach. I'm a teacher at the school. I'm a husband. I'm a father. Now I'm a track coach. And, um, and I'm a Christian. The guy stopped him right there, right between the eyes. He said, how come I'm a Christian is the last thing on your list? That's right, I'm all first. And he said, by the way, when you left the other day and you said you would pray for me, did you actually pray for me? Coach said, no. A turning point in that basketball coach's life. You see, we try to identify ourselves by who we are. I'm this, I'm that. I have this education, I have this kind of job. But we don't say for the most part, I'm a Christian first. Oh, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a dad, I'm a grandfather, I'm a pastor. And we seek self-affirmment by what we do instead of who we are in him. We go around bragging. I'm this, I'm that. And that's wonderful. Because God gives you the power and the ability to be this or that. A changing moment in this man's life. When he found out and answered the question, who are you? How do you get your identity? How do you get your identity? Relationship, friendship, job, education. How do you get your identity? You see, Paul the Apostle was a fierce man 
who caused the death of Christians, was there to hold the coats of those that were stoning Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And Paul had a real identity crisis. I'm a Pharisee. I sit at the feet of Gamaliel. I'm a big shot. I'm in the Sanhedrin. I'm somebody. Until he met up with Jesus. And from that point on, all he could say is, I'm crucified in Christ. That I may know him. Paul had no more identity crisis. He knew what he was. He knew what he became. And he knew where he was going. With or without other people. We get so wrapped up in the words of other people. We get so ensnared by the words of other people. Who try to give us some identity or we try to get some identity through them. Follow me. Who are you? We should be saying I'm a Christian first. It's not the house you live in. It's not the car you drive. It's not the money you have or the shoes that you wear. That's all well and good. Because you would have none of that except that God would breathe life into you just as a human being. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Do you see yourself as that? All things are passed away. All things. Garbage, junk, toxicity. I saw one girl I used to work with put something on Facebook yesterday. And I just had to respond to it. She was writing about this lady that was just not being nice to her, ignoring her, but yet would be on Facebook and not ignore other people. So I simply wrote her back and I said, toxic people have poison in their soul. And they take great delight in stinging other people. That's right. Simple. Detach. Detach. Don't respond. Just go on. Don't let that person cause your identity to change. Because you know who you are. Toxic people cause toxic environments. Christian people, God says either you are for me or you're against me. Jesus said that. There's no in between. Who am I? I'm a new creature in Christ. What does it say in the Bible? All things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. I've been reconciled to God when I was wayward, when I was in sin. Colossians chapter 1 verse 26. Look, who are you? Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, that's us, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Who are you? I'm a Christian that has the hope of glory in me. 
It doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter what the devil says. It doesn't matter what my family says. It doesn't matter what my friends. It doesn't matter. Because on that day, I will have to answer. And I can say to God, I have Christ. I have looked at the finished work of the cross. And I have accepted new covenant. And my sins and my iniquities, I have to answer for, have been forgiven. That's right. It says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. That means your mind also. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Who am I? Someone that is on their way to glory. Who am I? Someone that's on their way to heaven. Who am I? Someone that has the anointing of God. Who are you? Someone that has the unction of God. Who are you? Someone that has the Holy Spirit inside of you. Who are you? You're a Christian first before you're a dad, before you're a mom, before you're anything in life. And we're afraid to announce that. Because we fear persecution and we fear rejection. We fear to tell people when they ask us, when men shake each other's hands, first question, well, what do you do for a living? Does that matter? Are we going to be less of a friend if I tell you that my job is menial compared to yours? That you're a space scientist and I'm just a preacher? Will you look down on me with a condescending attitude if my level of salary doesn't meet your expectation, if the house that I live in doesn't meet your standard, the car that I drive is 23 years old. It's an old clunker. Does my identity change because I drive an old clunker? I'm in Christ. <laughs> I'm in Him. I love Him. He saved me. He changed the whole chemistry of my life and the whole direction of my life. Going on how many years? Since I was 25 years old. And I'm soon, in a few months, to be 72. And I still love Him. And I still want to know Him. I still want to know him better than I knew him yesterday. Let me close. Paul the Apostle, and I love this verse because it's quoted so much in the church world. He says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Look at that for a moment. He nailed it all to the cross. Identification. I am crucified with Christ. Listen to what it says. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. You can't do this by yourself, my friend. <laughs> you can't get a yellow piece of paper and put down, this is what I'm going to do. Because Jeremiah 29 and 11 says, I've got plans for you. I've got a hope for you. I have success for you and not failure. But if we don't go by Jeremiah 29 and 11, and if you read the verses after, you'll stay in captivity. Because when you read Jeremiah 29 and 11, and then you read the verses after, God's thoughts will take you out of captivity. Right. And people fail to speak about the verses that follow that verse. Right. Paul said, 
I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. When you start to lean on your own understanding, you will fail. Well, that's what he says. But Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who am I? I'm crucified with Christ. Who am I? I can't live by myself and do whatever I think I want to do. But I must be led by God's Holy Spirit. And I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's all about who are you? And it's all about the finished work of the cross because none of us can boast of anything. You can have the highest degree, the greatest amount of money, and buy a house like Steph Curry just bought for $31 million in the richest zip code in America. I don't know what a person does in a house that's worth $31 million. To me, a table is a table. To me, a bed is a bed. To me, a chair is a chair. Now, I'm not saying that he shouldn't have that. That's on Steph Curry. $31 million is a whole lot of money. And it's a whole lot of money. To close, if you know who you are, and if your identity is in him first, above everything else, Matthew 10, 7 comes into play. And as you go preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely you have received, freely give. We have the opportunity to share with other human beings who are lost, just like we were. Who were deceived, just like we were. Who were beguiled and seduced by the devil, just like we were. Who were trophies in Satan's kingdom, just like we were. We have the power to freely give words that God gives us through the power of the Holy Spirit to change the course of a human being's life. Think about that power. Think about that privilege. And think about that influence that God has bestowed upon us because of one fact, the finished work of the cross. He was born of a virgin, he died on the cross, and he rose again on the third day. God bless you, and thank you for listening.